Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week, we get to hear from another one of those wonderfully unfiltered guests. I love these. It is Paul Kimball, who was the bassist for Grant Lee Buffalo. I don't know if people remember Grant Lee Buffalo. They were huge for me in the 90s. So the band evolved. Joey Peters, Grant Lee Phillips, and Paul came from a band in the early 90s called Shiva Burlesque. And they went and formed their own band around Grant Lee Phillips, as the frontman and primary songwriter, and Paul produced their albums. They put out four albums. The first three include Paul. He was let go after the third. So he produced those first three, and I like all three of them. Um, and then he went off and did other things. And so in this conversation, we talk about, you know, what the, that band had such a unique vision. They didn't write, you know, pop songs. They didn't write love songs or party anthems. They wrote very unique and specific songs around you know, world history and the American West and cowboys. And it was, it's very different. In fact, this song you're listening to right here is one of my very favorite songs of theirs. It's called Lone Star Song. And it's the first track off their second album, Mighty Joe Moon. I love that album. Anyway, uh, Paul talks about his involvement in producing the Velvet Goldmine soundtrack. You guys know I love movie soundtracks. That's one of my very favorites and he appears on there. So we hear that story. We hear a great story about his interaction with David Bowie. Another great story around his interaction with Brian Eno. He is getting ready to release a solo album on September 28th. And uh, we play a little snippet of one of the songs off that in here. So if you're interested in getting to know what Paul is doing, be sure and follow him on Facebook or social media or whatever you want to do. Because it's great and it sounds just in keeping with the Grantly Buffalo sound. All right? So... Strap in. Paul is one of those great guests. I love people like him. And I hope you guys are reminded, if you didn't know already or had forgotten, what an excellent band Grantly Buffalo was back in the day. All right? He called me from his home in L.A. So let me let me kick this off. I like to kick it off with kind of stories or, you know, anecdotes I have about some of the people I'm talking to. I saw, I've only ever seen Grantly Buffalo in concert once. I'm originally from Salt Lake City. And oh, so, nice. Yeah, this would have the been... The Red Iguana is that Red Iguanas in Salt Lake City. Yes, it sure is. Like the best Mexican it's, food it ever. It is literally the best Mexican food in the world. Yes. Oh, I'm by, so glad by. to hear you say that. It's fantastic. That's my endorsement for Salt Lake City, by nice. the way. Nice. Good. Was Good. that a, a Deviate? Did you yes. see that Yes. Yes, yeah. that was it. It was see on it? the Copperopolis tour. I have a good memory. Good for you, man. I was hoping you'd know, you'd remember. 
Um, it was a little. I, so I was going to BYU at the time, and your show was on a Sunday night. And as you probably know, in Mormonville, Sunday is the Sabbath, and yeah, so yeah. it's not always the easiest to attract a crowd to a rock concert on a Sunday night. And I um, think I remember that exact. I think I remember that specific show actually. <laughs> you might. Uh, you might. Because we didn't play that many times in Salt Lake City. We only played maybe two or three times. So I, I know it was one of those. Yeah, that's the <laughs> only time I remember. It was always an interesting gig. I uh, bet. There. Why? What? Why specifically? What about it? Well, it's got a bit of a weird vibe just because of the, like you say, the Sunday night thing. Like, uh, you know, of course we picked the best night to <laughs> try uh-huh. and play a gig somewhere. Uh-huh. But I, it's like we, we, did, we did an opening show for somebody there. Hmm. Uh, which I can't remember where that was, but we were on some opening tour that we played a gig there, I believe, because I remember that I actually rode my bicycle from the sound check at the club to the Red Iguana, which was kind of a ride, if Uh I remember correctly. Uh And that must have been, I'm trying to think of what tour that was, because I didn't have my bicycle along on that many things. So, you know, I do have some splotchy memory just because of there's so much booze involved at some sure. point <laughs> but no great. i have fond memories of those gigs those were always good gigs and as uh, salt lake city is one of those towns where the people really appreciate yeah seeing something they do you know what i mean like yeah. it's a very it's a it's actually a fun town to play shows in because the people that do come out are pretty uh mm-hmm. dedicated to <laughs> yep. to things, you know. That's so. what I've heard. Um, and I think the reputation is changing. Oh, it's um, it's actually kind of a hot spot, especially for smaller indie bands, because it's got a it's got kind of a vibrant scene that way. But um, yeah, back in the day, it was difficult. You know, big bands didn't come through there very often. And me being a big music head, I was I went to any show that looked interesting. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I saw Matthew Sweet right. at the same venue as I saw you because he would come through town. You know. Yeah, and yeah. you had to see him every time. I mean, I loved him anyway, but yeah. So I, I saw that show and uh, I was on one of the best first dates I've ever been on. Her name was Kim Waters. And uh, it turned out, unfortunately, a couple dates later that she revealed herself to be a little nuts. So it didn't, you know, it didn't uh, last the test of time, but I will never forget that show. And you'll have to remind me, I have never been able to remember whoever opened for you. Was 16 a, horsepower, maybe? I don't think it was 16 horsepower mm. because I would remember them. The only thing I remember is I thought they were really good and they had a song about amoebas or called I'm an Amoeba or The Amoebas. That was probably – it was probably either a local band or it may be somebody that we were on tour with that I don't recall now. We I, may have had an opening act that toured with us, but I don't I, – I, yeah. I'm trying to remember what tour that was that you saw us on because – I think we played there a couple of times, mm. and this would have been Copperopolis. Uh, yeah, man, I I just don't remember okay. who the opening band would have been. Okay. I apologize to no, whoever that okay. opening band was. Yeah, I've always wondered because I really was impressed with them, and I don't normally get excited about openers, but they were. Well, great. we always we always picked opening bands based on the fact that we actually like them. Oh, good. So any okay. anybody that we ever had open for us, it was there was a reason for it, because they would try and stick somebody on a bill, and we'd go like, no, we really want somebody that we actually we yeah. would actually listen to people's tapes and go, okay, let's have these people because they're great. And sure. So it was somebody that we liked, I know for sure, because okay. we liked 
every band we ever had uh, with us, we we enjoyed. So Good. There is Man, that. I wish I, I wish I could remember who that was. Any listeners recall a band, an indie rock band from the late '90s, who had a song with the word "amoeba" in the title? That's who this was, and I can't remember. I can I can even picture that band kind of, but I can't remember the name. Yeah, I, 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 it'll come to me probably yeah. too late. Yeah, probably. So, uh, um, yeah, that so was my were... one. Oh, go ahead. No, nothing. Go well, on. I was going to say that was my one and only time, and um, I had become a fan shortly before that because, um, you know, Mormon guys go on Mormon missions, so I went on one of those two-year Mormon missions where you can't listen to any music for two years, and that was difficult, and when I got home, I worked in a CD store called Pegasus there in Provo, mm-hmm. where I went to college, okay. and um, the and we played the With Honors soundtrack a lot. And you had Fuzzy on there. That's and then we, true. Yeah. We played Mighty Joe Moon a lot, which is to this day still a perfect record in my in my mind. So oh, thanks. Yeah. So that's when the fandom started, and unfortunately, you know, you guys kind of petered out shortly after that. I so, did. Yeah. Uh, I want to know why. I mean, I really think that's kind of the that's the lead that I'm going to bury here for a couple more minutes. But the thing that I find really interesting about about uh, Grantley Buffalo is that you guys chose to write about different things than most rock and pop bands write about. There's no girls, there's no parties, there's no I'm in love. There's none of that. There's American Indians, there's the Wild West. Why? Why did you guys choose to do that? Well, that stuff was all Grant. Um, All of the the lyrics, uh, which is something that I never messed with. I, I, I will start out by saying that the best thing about that band to me was that nobody wanted to do what the other person was good at. Oh, good. And, um, you know, Grant and Joey would leave me in the studio by myself and I'd mix the records basically. Mm-hmm. And by, by the same token, I never said word one to Grant about his lyrics or his whatever. So all that stuff came from Grant. The, the, the intellectual property in terms of the, uh, lyrics and the, that direction of the band was entirely Grant. The sonic treatment of it mm-hmm. was a lot of it was me is kind of the way that everything worked out. Okay. And so that's just who Grant is. Grant is a very interesting, eclectic, legitimately eccentric person. Yeah, yeah. If you spend any time with him at all, his mind just works like that. He, he makes connections between things that shouldn't be connected. <laughs> and he makes sense out of all of it. And he, he, he is just that way 24 seven. He, he just, right. that's just the way his brain works. And so those songs are very, very indicative of, of Grant's sort of brain. Like that's just who the guy is. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I always loved it. Like yeah. I always, uh, you know, it, it, to me, it was always the greatest thing ever. Like I loved those songs and yeah. I, and I, I've always thought that Grant was highly underrated and uh, highly underappreciated as a, both a lyricist and a, uh, and, and as far as melody goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because to me, those lyrics are the best thing that happened in a 30-year time span, as far mm. as I'm concerned. Mm. And I still believe that, like for, for that time, that there was nobody writing more interesting songs than he was, you know. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, there's definitely – they're definitely unique. Um, sonically, they sound in keeping with – the best rock had to offer in the early 90s, you know. So, but it's not that, um, 
And for anyone who's listening that's unfamiliar with Grantley Buffalo, it's not that it's a difficult band to swallow at all. It's great. It's just it's taking on a different perspective than most pop music would have would have taken on at the time. It was an interesting combination of sort of accessible, but there was a lot of rabbit holes you could go down if you got into it. And um, yeah, uh, that was sort of by design, both lyrically and musically, like you could never quite get to the bottom of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Musically, musically, it was certainly designed that way. Hmm. Um, There's always little things going on in the background that you can't maybe don't even hear for a long time. And then eventually it's like, wait a minute, what's that thing? Yeah. So there's an element of not being able to get to the bottom of it, which I, I still really like. And I think that's why those records, one of the reasons those records hold up, I think still, because you can't ever be quite completely done with them in a weird way. Yeah. Very good. Uh, Yeah. That's very true. So when were these dynamics within the band, which it sounds like everybody was fine with these you like the role you played yeah. you empowered grant to play that role as well uh and then of course joey but were these was this dynamic laid out back in shiva burlesque the the first band you guys were in was it uh, i'll tell clear? you a story i'll yeah. tell you a story about shiva burlesque uh shiva burlesque was looking for a bass player and this grant and joey were playing in shiva burlesque and then there was a singer named jeffrey clark and they were looking for a bass player and they had an ad in like music connection magazine or something in Los Angeles. And so I answered the ad because I had been trying to put my own band together and was fed up with it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get in a band and be a bass player for a while and screw this. Mm -hmm. And so I answered the ad and we talked a little bit and I I was going to come down there and see them play at at the the show at the music machine. And I went down there with the girl that I was dating at the time and they started, they came on stage and started playing. And within 10 seconds of them starting to play, I turned to this girl and I said, I'm going to get in this band. I'm going to steal the guitar player and the drummer, and that band is going to be successful. Really? Yeah. You and saw it, it that clear. No, I, I knew it the second I saw those guys start to play. It's like, these are the two guys for me. I, I know this really? is going to work. And I've always had an element of that where my intuition about stuff like that is just, <laughs> it's just never wrong. Kind really? Of. Okay. I, I, I trust it sort of implicitly. Yeah. But I knew a second I saw Grant and Joey that... Uh, they were going to be the guys. And Shiver Burlesque had a very different dynamic because Jeffrey Clark was the singer in that band, and he wrote a lot of the songs. Grant wrote yeah. a few at that time. Okay. Um, Grant becoming more of his own independent person and becoming a songwriter, and Grantley Buffalo sort of grew out of Shiver Burlesque over the course of a year or two because Grant, Joey, and I, I lived with Joey at the time, and so we'd get together and goof around all the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of songs came out of that. I mean, when before Grantley Buffalo got signed, we had like 50 songs. Oh, <laughs> like, really? We had a lot of material. And, and some we, of them were yours. These are not all entirely no, grants. These, so. these were all grants at that point. At that point, okay. I, wasn't, I wasn't writing very much myself. Okay. okay. Uh, so these are all grant songs, really. And he, he's very prolific. I mean, he writes a million songs a day, that guy. Sure. So he, there was plenty of material. So it sort of grew organically out of that, but not really quite organically because I sort of had designs on those two guys Mm -hmm. and uh, I was really pushing for that band as a three piece because every time we got together as a three piece it was just obviously great it was obviously a good band like there was an obvious chemistry there and there was was something going on like Mm -hmm. with that band 
and I always believed in it right from the start. It was one of those things like I, I just know this is the thing to do really? kind of thing. Wow. And there was a lot of trials and tribulations around it. We had a manager at the time, Achiever Burlesque, and he didn't want us to go off on our own and blah, all this shit. Yeah. And I was like, ah, right. whatever, fuck all this. Thing. Yeah. This is the right thing to do. So there Good. you go. Okay. There's okay. the hustle for you. Yeah. Now, was Grant, when you guys broke off, was Grant the sort of elected leader of your new band? Because, I mean, you basically adopt his name as the name of your band, which I've never... You'll have to explain why you decided to name yourself Grantly Buffalo. What was the thing? Well, there? I was all for that, actually. And I was all for the, the album cover, the fuzzy album cover being Grant's picture, because I wanted to establish an identity for that band as soon as possible. Mm. Here's the singer. Here's the guy that writes the songs. It is it is Grant's band in that sense. And I was happy to be the producer. I was happy to be the sonic guy. I was happy to be the arranger. I was happy. I was happy doing those things because I was good at them and I liked to do them. And at the time, I, I wasn't going to write songs as good as Grant was, mm -hmm. you know, and I knew that. So I, I was fine with him being that guy in the band. And like I said, it was a good arrangement because nobody really wanted to do what the other person was good at. Yeah. And, and so we didn't have a lot of conflicts in terms of like everybody wants to be the chef or whatever. You know what I yeah. mean? Like yeah. uh, we, we each had our roles and, and, and they complemented each other well. And it was a pretty amicable sort of a a thing like we didn't fight a lot we we didn't okay. get into like big you know we didn't get into like big problems or anything it was always pretty fun and it was always pretty easy like all the grantley buffalo stuff is like one take two takes like oh, there's no like there's no like laboring over shit yeah. with these okay ones. you know it's, it's all it was all done very very quickly and very instinctively like uh, a lot of it so okay it was okay. never a, it was never a grind with that band. It was never a, it was never work. It was never like something difficult that yeah, you had slot through or whatever. You know, it was okay. it was always very easy for me. Good. Now, when Fuzzy comes out in 1993, this was the period when I was on that Mormon mission. So I don't remember when it came out. I discovered it after I got home and and really got into Mighty Joe Moon. But so I don't know whether. Um, there was a big upswing and if you felt like you were finding success, you know, um, were you getting played on the radio? Was, were you playing? Well, there's a, there's a bigger, there, there's a bit of a story to this. Oh, um, okay. We released, we released the song fuzzy on Bruce Leicher's, uh, little independent label in Los Angeles. Hmm.
Bob Mould heard that and signed us to Singles Only label. And we released it. Then we released it on Bob Mould's label. And then WFNX in Boston started picking it up and playing it, which at the time was a big sort of influential kind of alternative station. Okay. So we basically had this song in the top 40 on Boston. And we were also consequently playing these sold-out gigs at Largo, which is this place in Los Angeles. Yeah, heard of And it. so it was like record labels would come down to the show and they couldn't get in. Mm. And that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> because that's when they want you the worst is when they can't have you. Like, right. And so talk about the hustle. That was the hustle. And part of the, part of the hustle of that whole thing was at the time we were playing sort of all over L.A. trying to drag people to gigs and whatever. And I said, look, let's just pick one place that we like and only play there. Mm-hmm. We'll play once every week or we'll play once every two weeks. Like every second Sunday at Scranley Bell or every second Friday, whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. And, and let's turn it into a social event instead of – come see our band because who gives a fuck about your band nobody does right and and so we turned it into more of a party and more of a social event and it was just a bunch of our friends would come down it was a small place like 150 seats 200 seats and so very quickly it developed into these sold out shows well there's nothing better to attract attention than like a line around the block and people who can't get in and the guy that ran the place Flanagan was had a lot of sort of animosity for the music industry so if if somebody was at the door that was from a label he'd be like ah get get lost Uh, right I'm Uh selling seats to people that actually like music not you you know not you creeps or whatever right right and so that was perfect for us it was perfect for me because I freaking hate the music business and always Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. so that was the strategy, and that's how it came to be that labels started sniffing around. And then it was like, well, this label, Interscope, wants to talk to you, and and this label, and this label, and blah, blah, blah. And so it gave us a lot of latitude to go in and say, okay, here's what we want to do. Okay. Uh, okay. Which I did to an assholish proportion. Like, uh, I went into those meetings and just basically told them, like, look, I'm going to produce the records. I don't care what you think about them. I don't care if you think the snare drum needs to be like this or whatever. I don't even uh-huh. want to hear it. Uh-huh. You're going to let me do it the way that we're going to, you're going to let us operate the way we operate. Nice. Sorry. Or I you can talking. piss off. And I don't care if we get signed or not. And I didn't care if we got signed or not. It's like, we'll, really? we'll continue to do what we're doing. Somebody's going to sign us based on our merits and what we yeah. want to, how we want to do this. And if they don't, I don't give a shit. Right. <laughs> I really don't care anymore. Interesting. And I was totally at that point. And, and so we went into these meetings like that and slash was like, okay, you can do whatever you want. You know, wow. now Charged. you say you, you throw down the gauntlet saying, I don't care. Um, what would you have done? What did you have a backup plan? Would you have gone and uh, become a insurance somebody was, salesman? I knew some, no, I'm okay. still not. I'm, I'm very old and I'm still doing this bullshit. Are you really? Okay. That's I'm, I'm going to release an album like next September. You know what that's I mean? Amazing. Like, yeah, I'm still doing this. So, uh, no, I didn't. I legitimately didn't care because okay. I knew I knew it was going to work, and I knew that it was. I had absolute confidence that somebody was going to sign us, sign us based on our terms. Okay. And, you know, too many people sort of grovel for a chance to do something, and it's just the wrong approach to take. Sure. Because these people, these people in the music business, the more they can't have you, the more they want you. Sure. You yeah. know, and and it's like. They got a million people trying to send them tapes and grovel for their acceptance and whatever. And it's like, I just went ahead completely the other way around. Yeah. Like, you're the ones that need us. We don't need you. Because without us, there is no freaking record label. If you don't have good acts, you're nothing. Right. 
So right. we're actually the ones that are in charge of this situation, not you. Wow. And that's, that's the empowering. hustle. Good for you. It and it's the truth. Yeah. And the way more people need to behave with these people instead of bending over and giving them everything they want and like selling your soul out and having some horrible producer come in and ruin your fucking band. You know, right. it's, it's, uh, it happens to a million bands. So Good for you, man. Wow. Right from the get go, we had ourselves set up so that nobody was going to mess with us. And and for the for for uh, until after the third record they didn't yeah okay. which leads me to why I ended up leaving but yes. that's a, yeah, yeah. That's we're gonna get there point. we're gonna get there believe me <laughs> um, we're getting there so okay so fuzzy comes out Michael Stipe calls it the best album of the year hands down um, he's is very it, smart. he's very what <laughs> what's that he's he's very smart now yeah. Michael's Michael's a lovely human being, but that was really nice of him to say. It was. It, it it did help. So, you know, speaking of Michael and him being a nice person, you're suddenly become, you know, you're making a living as a rock star. You've got yeah. a really hyped, buzzed about band. You're getting some airplay. You're playing shows. Are you starting to meet heroes and idols of yours that you grew up, you know, wanting to rub shoulders well, I, with? I did. And there's only three. Oh, tell uh, me. Uh, Michael Stipe was I, I when I was I was actually homeless for a while and when I was homeless and living in my tent in the uh, mountains of Malibu, no uh, the one cassette tape that I had and my Walkman cassette uh-huh. was Life's Rich Pageant. There you go. That's about and the only I, one you need. And I listened to that record over and over and over and over and it sort of helped get me through that. So Stipe was a big one. REM in general was a big one for me and I love every one of those guys and so that that was a big deal and then I met Bowie and I met Eno no and those way. are the other two that are like you know yeah top top of the heap for me so now you got to tell me how you met Bowie and what that was like Bowie we played some shows with and did you okay he, he came into our dressing room we were in our dressing room before we were going to play we were on right before him and we hadn't met him yet, and he came to the dressing room. There's a knock on the door, uh-huh. and open up the dressing room door, and it's like he says, "Hi, I'm David." You oh, know, it's gosh. like, "Yeah, I'm familiar with who you are." Right. But he came, he came in and started talking to us, and I sat there and talked to him for like ten minutes, and the most instantly charming, instantly likable, instantly funny, That's what everybody instantly says. charismatic uh, guy that yeah. you could ever meet and, and just charming human being and and the most sort of at ease and funny and like uh, just the greatest human being like just instantly likable person amazing and and so that was a huge one for me and uh, I have to continue this story because then we're about to go on stage so this is literally if I had to say one person Bowie is either it or close it's either Bowie or Eno Okay. So Bowie is way up on the list for me, right, not right. the top list, you same. know? Yep, same here. And so he's standing on the side of the stage when we start our set because he comes out to see us play. And and he's literally about 10 feet from me. I'm on the left side of the stage, and I look over the left, and there's Bowie standing there with his arms crossed, like, watching us start our set. So 
we start this set, and the first thing that happens, literally on the first downbeat of the first note, is I break a fucking bass string. Oh, no. <laughs> There's no spare bass for whatever stupid reason. We're at a festival playing in front of 100,000 people or whatever. There's no spare bass. Of course not, because why would you need a spare bass? Sure. Uh-huh. Can't afford shit like that, you know? So right off the bat, and I never broke bass strings, ever. I, I would go 50 gigs and not uh-huh. break <laughs> so literally right off the bat, broken string, bleh, the bass goes out of tune. So I got to hand the bass off to the tech and say, okay, fuck it. I'll try and play these songs in keyboard. Don't quite know what I'm doing, but I'll fake something. Uh-huh. So I sit down and I started on the keyboard and something is wrong with the power supply of the keyboard. And the keyboard is like a step and a half flat and kind of <laughs> around. So the keyboard is literally unplayable. So these are my only two instruments that mm-hmm. I have on stage. Uh-huh. I'm in front of 100,000 people, and David Bowie is sitting next to me with his arms crossed going, well, this sucks. Uh, you know? <laughs> that sounds terrible. Here's my here, like literally one of the few people that I would say, like, okay, this guy I actually care about. Me. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the 10 minutes that he watches me is literally the worst I have ever oh, been on man. stage. Like, ta-da. That's you know, awful. No, it's perfect. Well, it's yeah. perfect, perfect <laughs> because it's like uh, I can I can pull I can pull off Grantly Buffalo gig in, in any situation and have we've played in any we've played with lightning storms in the rain outdoors we've played with drunk off our asses broken equipment whatever I and every gig was flawless yeah you know yeah like we Grantly Buffalo played so many flawless literally no mistake gigs. And then the one time that the one guy I care about is standing on the side of the stage, it's just a complete disaster, and it's wow. perfect. It's like, what? of course it's going to What are the odds? You know, My gosh. Because you want to do your best. Yeah. And like, nope, you're just going to be your worst. And I had to laugh about it. It's like, oh, this is, you know, this is perfect. Thank wow. you, Mr. Bowie, for coming in and destroying our set. That you is know? terrible. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, at least it happened. At least it happened, and you have a story. If yeah, it had gone per- perfectly, you wouldn't have had as interesting no, a story. It's, 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 I think it's perfect because it's like when the gods arrive, like you ha- you, you're you not worthy, you can't do it. Like yeah. you're just going to, f- you know? Yeah. Like he was the only guy that could just make everything I did just fail. Like he was one of those guys that could pull that sure. off. And I, sure. I give him full props for that, you Good. know? Okay. Um, I, I don't mind that. Yeah. So tell me a song off of Fuzzy that isn't the song Fuzzy that you are especially proud of. Stars and Stripes is always the That's my favorite too. Oh, I'm glad you said that.
Okay, why? Well, first of all, that recording is from my garage before we were signed. Really? Star- Stars and Stripes, Fuzzy, and Dixie, Dur- and Dixie Drugstore, those three songs are the recordings I made in my garage on my 16-track one-inch before we were signed. No way. It was muggy to lie on supper time when I pulled into New Orleans. I got dropped off on the Rampart Street. I was hungry for a plate of greens. I made my way down the banquet where I could see an open door. And overhead a sign made of painted pine red The Dixie Drugstore Peppers and roots were hanging from the rafters above There were oils and sprays all on display For money, luck and for love I reached down to pick one up on a dark hand grabbed my arm And before I could see just two words She said, you don't want that charm Man, to walk that thing out of here, he just up and disappeared. Found his wallet and his wingtip shoes. So, Stars and Stripes has always been the prototype for me. And when you hear, actually, when you hear my new record, you'll understand why. Because there's there's, there's songs in there that are very very similar to Stars and Stripes. Really? That that beat and that feel and that sound and that mood was that was some that was me. Yeah. And. That's always been my imprint on that band. Stars and Stripes, Happiness, uh, Hyperion and Sunset, like okay. that stuff yeah. is the most uh, the most me, the okay. most the, the stuff that's the most sort of that I sort of altered the most. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because Grant brought Stars and Stripes and Joey was playing one, two, three, four, do 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 and do. You know, it's like uh-huh. a sort of a upbeat kind of four on the floor kind of thing. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this has got to be like this kind of beat. It's got to right. be slow. This, it's got to have this mood because that that's what Grant was doing, basically. You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, so I'm that's glad. My that's my favorite song. That's my and favorite still song, my too. Favorite, still my favorite song out of all the Grantley Buffalo songs. That's always Good. been the prototype for me. Yes, me too. I can't tell you how many times I got ready for school or to go out with – Soft, soft wolf tread and stars and stripes. I would just hit repeat you know what do? and hit you them over and over again. I will happily send you one oh, of the please songs. Please do. I would love to hear that. It's very stars and stripes esque. Good. Um, Exceptional fiction recalling attention, divided by thoughtful demand. Suspended restriction and troubled addiction Suggestive of some master plan Incessant expression and futile demands Have broken apart at the sea America dreams It has that same feel to it, like you'll recognize it, sort of, you know? Okay, great. Um, but that's that's always been my thing, and it's one of the reasons that I'm excited about the record that I'm about to release, because I think people will get a, 
a very clear sort of picture of like, oh, this is what mm -hmm. this guy did in mm -hmm. this other band. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's sort of a lot of that stuff sort of takes off where that where Grantley Buffalo left off in terms of how it sounds and the approach to it. Like there's okay. some very there, there's some some real consistent similarities to that. And some of it's very different, but but a lot of it is grounded in that exact same thing because I've always liked that. <laughs> I've yeah. always liked that, you know, yeah. and I still do. Good. Okay. Uh, just gravitate towards that. So. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Now, Mighty Joe Moon, like I said, I, I worked in a record store when that came out. And for anyone who's ever worked in a any retail, really, because, you know, music is being piped through the system on all nonstop on your eight hour shift. And right. sometimes there's like if you're in Old Navy, it's the same 40 songs and maybe you are so sick to death of certain songs. And then there's others that you can't wait to hear. For instance, when I worked there, the Cranberries No Need to Argue was big and I hate that album. And another, <laughs> and another one was Letty Kravitz, Are You Gonna Go My Way? And I hated that album too because I got so sick of hearing them pipe through the speakers all the time. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Mighty Joe Moon just grew on me more and more and more. Now, I don't know if that, to me, sonically, that album is a slight step up, as good as Fuzzy was. That one's even a, a league or two better, if you ask me. Um, you know, Mockingbirds has started. There's a video for that. You're getting some airplay on MTV. Did you notice things uh, getting even a little bit bigger and better and more successful with that one? Were you plateauing? What was the vibe after that album? You know, we played so many gigs that there wasn't time to think about stuff much. I mean, even the recording, the recording of Mockingbirds was insane. Like we literally came straight off the road and went into the studio, like literally the next day. And, and that, that was when the Northridge earthquake, I'm going to say uh, happened. Huh. And Grant's trailer, which he lived in at the time, got knocked off its foundation. My house was completely destroyed by this earthquake. So Grant and I were living in a two-man tent in Joey's backyard no way. while we recorded Mighty Joe Moon. We recorded Mighty Joe Moon in a week. We went back out on the road. And while we were on the road, I said to Grant, you know, the one thing this record needs is there's not a song like Fuzzy that has those lilting mm -hmm. sort of falsetto vocals. Mm -hmm. 
And he went away for a couple of days and wrote Mockingbirds. Oh my gosh. And so we came back off the road, recorded Mockingbirds, and then finished mixing the record and blah, blah, blah. Incredible. But the, 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 the point of all that is, is that we were playing 300 shows ish a year. We oh. were playing six nights a week all over the place. So, you know, yeah, you start, you start playing bigger venues I mean, we went from playing like a 200-seat club in London to playing a 2,500-seat show. There you go. In, in the matter of like six months or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, things are happening. You're doing, But we were playing a lot of opening gigs. Okay. So it's hard to gauge like your own crowd in an True. opening gig because you're playing for REM or you're opening for the Smashing Pumpkins or whatever. Right. And it's like playing in a basketball arena. Like who the hell knows? Yeah. So, you know? Yeah. Good point. Yep. And we did some of our own club shows, but especially in the United States, we never did much in the U.S. Like we never caught on much in the U.S. It was always Europe. Was, oh, was always really? So you guys were bigger in Europe than you were over here? Oh, oh God, yes. Yeah, nobody really? paid in the States at all. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I was paying attention, yeah. so I assumed other people were too. I didn't realize that you had a much bigger audience over there. No, if we went to London, we'd play 2,500 seats. If we went to LA, we'd play 500 maybe, yeah. you know, okay. like, and that was our hometown. Like yeah. if yeah. we went out on tour in the United States, we'd play like 300 seat clubs if we were lucky kind yeah. of, you know, it was never like a big thing. Like we're going to play 3000 seats or something in the, in the U S like, uh, it just never took off that way in the U S and it was always Europe, like mm. France and, and, and the UK and Norway and like, uh, Italy, like we, we, we did really well in those places, but, uh, that, that was always where the, huh. the, the interest was. Sort what, of. what do you attribute that to considering what a specifically so American now, band you are? Now I'm going to get in trouble. Uh Oh, Oh, tell me. Uh, the audiences are smarter. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, Brantley Buffalo isn't a band that you can be a dipshit and get into per se. Yeah. Um, it re it requests, see, this is going to get me in trouble. It, it requires uh, the ability to process complex thought. I that's would very say. True. That's very and true. I, and I think that Grantley Buffalo listeners in general are intelligent people. Mm -hmm. And America is a very Ted Nugent, Joe six pack market. Mm -hmm. And, and the people that, both the people that consume the market and the people that drive the market. Um, if you get into, there's certainly a, a, a contingent of intelligent, great people in the United States, but there's also a huge dipshit factor in the United States as evidenced by our current situation. Absolutely. And um, so that's why, I mean, uh, Europeans appreciate, music in a different way they appreciate artistry they appreciate complexity they appreciate atmosphere and mood they are not necessarily after songs about beer and cars and girls and mm -hmm. love affairs or whatever you know yeah and uh there's a long tradition of europe liking jazz music and liking this and liking that and i think that i think it's gone on for decades and decades in europe that, that they just have an appreciation for more complex expressions mm -hmm. of art in general yeah okay uh, america is a very superficial place and it likes very superficial entertainment yeah. and grantley buffalo was not a superficial band that makes sense that's that makes sense i don't think that'd get you in trouble that's that's truth that makes a lot of sense you know the yeah. truth can get plenty of trouble well, that's true that's true <laughs> um okay so tell me then a song off mighty joe moon that you're especially proud of well mockingbirds 
Something other than Mockingbirds, because we're going to play Mockingbirds. So give me another one that we can sprinkle in here. Well, Mighty Joe Moon is another one of those prototypes. I mean, actually, Hyperion and Sunset. No, that's on Copperopolis, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Uh, trying to think of what's even on Mighty Joe Moon. Uh, it's The Life, Mighty Joe Moon, Demon Called Deception, Lady Godiva, uh, Happiness, Honey Don't Think. Happiness. Same thing with Stars and Stripes. It's Happiness. Really? I- Songs you like best. that really kind of dark, brooding mood, then? Yeah, no, I do for real. Okay. And Lady Godiva and Me, I think, is one of those songs that is absolutely there is no prototype for. Yeah, I could see that. recorded a song like that yeah. as far as i can tell and i love that about that that song lady godiva and me is such a quintessentially grantley buffalo song mm. <laughs> because it's this acoustic guitar kind of i don't even know what it is americana-esque which i fucking hate that description but sure. kind of what is it? I don't even know what that is, what the first part of that song is. But then it breaks into this like just crazy, what the hell is this cacophony of stuff? Mm. I mean, nobody puts those things together. The The other thing that I always thought about Grantley Buffalo that we did differently was that we played angry songs slow and sad songs fast. Good point. Yeah. Which is the opposite of what everybody else does. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very true. Like I never Stars thought of that. Like Stripes is the first slow, angry song in history, I think. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, Interesting, And I think right. that's, a, that's a real point of, of, of interest for Grantley Buffalo in general is that 
everybody plays angry songs fast. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do that, you know. Right. Our happier songs, some of them are fast, you know. It's weird. Right. right. We were a weird band, but yeah. I'm sorry. All right. So, Copperopolis, uh, Bethlehem Steel comes out. It starts getting some airplay on the radio in Utah, where I live. It was a blue. Love that song. Love it. It's sonically so adventurous. It's very, it's got this great, almost like a, almost like a little bit of like a trip hoppy vibe to it or something. There's, it's kind of funky. Something's going on. It's very moody and it's so different than your other stuff. And so I run right out and I buy Copperopolis. And I have to tell you, I was a little bit disappointed by the rest of the album. It doesn't quite measure up to the other two. I don't know if you, to me, I don't know if you feel that way. Maybe you guys feel like you did something you were super proud of, or there was some contention going on where it's like, uh, this wasn't our best moment. How do you guys feel about Copper Opera? I, I personally think that's the best record. Do you and really? I, oh, well then I'm And I off. think that the reason that people can't get into that as much, and I knew this going into it, is that it was a lot more dense. Yeah, it is. There's a lot more to plow through in that record. And, it's going to alienate some people because do you play any musical instruments? I don't No. Um, so there's this thing, there's the biter Madoff, Madoff scale, whatever it's called, uh, which is for intelligence or whatever. But there's also a same thing I think happens with music. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be condescending when I say this, no, say but it. your ability to appreciate music is directly related to your talent for mm. it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was stepping over the line with Copperopolis because of how dense that record wow. was and that people might not be able to decipher it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's part of what's happening. Uh, but then again, you could just like the other albums better, and that's fine too. I, I it, It's hard for me to say like, oh, this one is the best or this because – uh, none of that shit really matters to me. Like okay. I just, I just do the work. And once it's done, I really don't care. I don't mm-hmm. care if people like it or they don't like it. I don't care. Uh, if, if, if I like something that I did and somebody else doesn't, I don't care. And if, and if I hate something I did and somebody else likes it, that's not going to change my mind either. Sure, sure. I don't care one way or the other. It doesn't matter. The work is what mattered. Right. And, and the making of the thing is what's important to me. Once it's done, I just don't give a shit. Right. So, I, I mean, I respect your opinion. on it. That's how it is for you. And that's great. I don't care. Somebody else will think differently about it and sure. whatever. And that's, and that's fine too. It's like, it's not for me to say that people ought to like this or the other thing or whatever, because it's never, 
part of the equation for sure. me. What other anybody else is going to think about it? Okay. I like Copperopolis because we really push the limits. Grant and I sat yeah. down at the beginning of that record and said, you know what? On this record, let's just use the studio as much as we possibly can. That, sound, that makes let's, sense. It sounds let's like just it. do every single thing we can do in a studio. Let's just do it. Yeah. Because okay. it's an experiment. Right. And, and uh, resting on your laurels or whatever. I mean, we could have made My Joe Moon Part 3. I know how to make that record. Uh-huh. But it's like that's not moving forward as an artist. That's not moving forward as anything. It's just regurgitation. And and then you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's part of the hustle, too, is you got to keep moving forward. Sure. You sure. know? I will say. I have work in this in the show title into this all the time. I do <laughs> love that. I do. Because that's the whole point. That's why I called it this is because people have to. Legacy artists who we mostly talk to have to kind of hustle to, you know, keep their name alive and everything. So I really appreciate that. Okay. So speaking of the hustle, let me give your listeners an example of the hustle on the show, the hustle while I'm hustling during the show, the hustle. Nice. I've got a record coming out on September 21st called Netherworld Orange. The band name is Pistol Star, a.k.a. Paul Kimball on M&O Records. So that's the hustle right there. Nice. You, you need to plug your goddamn oh, shit. Absolutely. That's the hustle. That's exactly it. You've <laughs> got I'm it. The worst guy at it. I hate the music business. I hate the mm-hmm. hustle. This episode ought to be about how do you survive in the music business if you hate the music business and you hate the hustle. That that's right. what, this episode, what this episode is. It is different. But I feel you on that because I, I hate all those things too. But when you're when you're a musician and you're you're a creative person and you've got to rise above the din of everything else that's out there vying for people's attention, um, you have to do those things. And it no, it, you don't. And here's well, why. Oh, really? And here's how okay. you do it. Okay. I'm going to give your listeners some insight into the hustle. Okay. If you're a person like me that hates the music business and hates the business and literally is no good at it and is horrible at networking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what you need to do is surround yourself with good people mm-hmm. that you trust that are good at it. Good point. And that's where I've just gotten to in the last year or two. I met this guy in France that's now like my partner and we do the stuff and yada, yada. And like, it, it's, uh, he's exactly the guy I needed to try and get this music stuff done because he is great at organization. He is great at following through with stuff and making sure that these things are printed up and doing this thing and sending this thing and signing this thing and doing this. And I suck at it. I am horrible. And that's always been one of my downfalls and one of one of the things that's held me back. So if, if you're not good at the hustle, but you're still a musician, you got to find somebody who is and befriend them and make them do the goddamn work. Well said. That's <laughs> that's the key. Good for you. So you can sit back and create and somebody else can take on the responsibility that you aren't comfortable with. I can completely appreciate that. Yeah, that's um, exactly it. I will tell you, I pulled out Copperopolis for the first time in a long time to get ready to talk to you. And I liked it much better than I did when I first. Well, your tastes have matured now. You may yeah. be surprised that you find that you like that album better. If you listen to Hyperion Sunset.
and you listen to Comes to Blows, and you listen to... I mean, there's a lot of songs on that record sure. that really are quintessential sort of Grantly. Yeah. I love Homespun. There's great stuff on that album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is dense an and it's that, longer, but you're it takes, right. It takes yeah. longer for you to get into that record than it does the other two. The other two are certainly more immediate records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Copperopolis to me is the sleeper record because because of that. that makes I sense. think that's the record that 50 years from now people will go like, wow, listen to this crazy shit. Interesting. You know? Well, I'm gonna I want to throw this out then to my listeners, and hopefully when this comes out, you'll share it with your fans as well. I want to hear what people think. If what what album gets you know, do your fans feel the most affection for? I, I'm really curious. Maybe I'm the guy who missed the boat the first time around, and everyone no, else. No, I think I think the consensus, the, the consensus has always been either Mighty Joe Moon or Fuzzy, and like I I, I know why, and I'm perfectly happy with that. I I like all of those records. Like right. I, not like I don't like any of them. So you know, okay, that's okay. fine. All right. <laughs> well, let's get to the meat of this. Why did you get fired? Because the record label came to us, I got—I sort of had an intervention against me. Oh, really? Uh, the, the, af, after the third record, the record label, we had a meeting. And it was like the label guy was there, the A&R guy was there, our manager was there, all the band guys were there. Uh, There's a couple of guys from the label, something or other, blah, blah, blah. And the whole purpose of the meeting was like, okay, the next record we need an outside producer was basically the talk. Why? Because are you not reaching the level of success that they because want you to reach? Because I took a band so... from my garage to international acclaim, and that's not good enough, apparently. Well, you well, know, and it pissed, me, it pissed me the fuck off. I bet. Uh, it pissed me off yeah. really fucking badly. And it was completely disrespectful. Uh, I mean, I understand... I understand, especially from Grant's point of view, Grant's a guy that doesn't like to repeat himself. He likes to try new things. And I understand from Grant's, from Grant's point of view, I can understand artistically, he maybe wanted to try something different. He was tired of the strategy. Let's, let me mix it up mm-hmm. because I think he was starting to really feel like he just wanted to be on his own anyway. He mm-hmm. always kind of wanted to just be on his own. You know, mm-hmm. I sort of, before Grantley Buffalo got signed, when Grantley Buffalo got signed, he was really ready to go off on his own then. Mm. And I sort of talked him into like staying in the two of us working together. Like, dude, this is great. We have to put out some records like this. This is a really good band, you know? Right. Right. And, and so he was, he's always been ready to be a solo artist and now he has been for 20 years or whatever it's been, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I think he was always kind of chomping at the bit for that, Okay. but it was just the fact that, um, Given what I had accomplished as a producer, which was taking this band literally from nothing in a fucking garage to international acclaim and universal praise from the press and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, why don't you just give me a chance here? Like I've done pretty well so far, you know, this was also at the time when Lenny Warnaker, I think had left Warner brothers, which, which to me was a huge blow for Grantley Buffalo because Lenny Warnaker loved Grantley Buffalo. Oh really? Okay, good. Was a smart, man and he was an actual producer himself that had produced tons of hit records like this guy knew what he was talking about yeah and lenny went into a meeting after we got we got bumped up from slash to warner brothers and lenny in one of the early grantley buffalo related meetings told people that 
Mockingbirds was the best sounding song he had ever heard. Whoa. Okay, this is this is a guy that is re- reportedly this is what he said. I didn't hear it, but reportedly this is what he said from somebody that I trust at Warner Brothers. But so this to me was like uh, I mean, how much better praise can you get that that to me no is kidding. like that's one of those he's one of the few guys that like if if Lenny Warnaker says something like that about you that's flattering. Yeah. <laughs> like no kidding. I actually take that seriously because that guy if he would have told me like ah oh, this guy sucks we need another producer I would have thought all right maybe I do. Yeah. And think about it. Like if it, that would have come from Lenny I would have taken that different than than from the people it came from. Sure. Because the people that it came from didn't know fucking shit yeah. about shit. And that's what pissed me off. And it kind of pissed me off that Grant and Joey went along with it because it was like, ah, eh. Yeah. It just felt like kind of a, a yeah. betrayal of what started and where. And so I was fucking pissed off about it. And that's the long and short of it, really. Okay. I assume that, you could have stayed in the band and re- and as a I, member, but just not a producer. And that's not what you wanted to do. player. Like, yeah. like fucking right. monkey to that job like seriously right. like i'm right. gonna be the bass player yeah you've got to be kidding me right. you know uh eh, eh. Okay. no thank you huh wow well now when they went on without you i mean are you guys you've said nothing but nice things about grant this whole interview i assume I, you guys are cool feel that way about him I, i've never felt any differently about grant in my life even when i left the band i've never felt any differently about grant grant is a genius grant yeah. is the best lyricist in our time, as far as I'm concerned. And I still feel that way about him. And I will always feel that way about him. There's absolutely no, you have to separate sort of the business problems of it with who Grant is as an artist. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the business problems and the sort of, uh, to me, it was all for one and one for all as a band, it was us against the world. And when that changed, that's when I was, that's when I decided to bow out because I, now I don't believe in it anymore. Right. If it's not our vision of a band, uh, I can't get behind. I'm not just going to do something because I can earn a paycheck doing it. Uh, I, I don't, I, I can't do that. Like yeah. I can't do something that's dishonest with myself. And mm-hmm. that's really why I left. It's like, this is dishonest to me. If I just stay in this band and I'm going to listen to somebody else try and produce this record and all it's going to do is piss me off. And I knew that <laughs> like, mm-hmm. there's no way I'm going to be able to sit there and let somebody else produce this record and go like, you're an idiot. Right. We should be doing this. Like, uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. And I knew it. And I thought that would have brought chaos to these guys too. Yeah. yeah. It's not just leaving for myself. It's like, if you guys really want another producer, then who's playing bass is irrelevant. Yeah. True. So okay. go ahead the thing that you guys think you need to do and I'll bow out of it, which is my way of dealing with conflict. If somebody is hell bent on doing something, I'm not going to sit there and fight you over it. I'll just leave yeah. and I'll go do something else. Now were names being thrown around. I can't remember. I've never actually owned Jubilee, so I don't remember who uh, produces that. When you left, I kind of lost interest to be honest. Um, I Were names being thrown around at the time? Like instead well, of Paul, let's get whoever, Rick Rubin or something? You don't know what came up at that meeting specifically. I don't even remember. It didn't matter. Okay. I, I, it wouldn't matter to who they said, okay. honestly, okay. because nobody was better 
for producing a Grantley Buffalo record than me. I don't give a fuck who it is. Right, I don't care right. if it's Brian Eno, and I love Brian Eno. Sure. But Brian Eno is not better at producing a Grantley Buffalo record no. than I am. Yeah, I agree. And I literally believed that, and I and I still do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so that was the point of it, was like so much of the fabric of the sound of that band was what I did to it. And mm-hmm. that was my role. Yeah. So when you take away the producer role for me, you're taking away what I actually do in the band. Right. <laughs> that is my, that's my job in the band. Playing the bass is superfluous. It, sure. it, it, it's meaningless, you know, yeah. anybody could, Grant could have played the bass. It didn't matter who played the freaking bass, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So that was my job and my job was being taken away. And that's why I was like, okay, if you want somebody else to do this, then I'm out. Mm-hmm. I got to go. Yeah. You know? Okay. That makes sense. Sure. Very simple decision for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, now you um, do. I have I read this right? Do you guys reform every now and then? I mean, not regularly, but once in a while to do a, like a, a reunion show or maybe a I don't know we a festival. Will, we, we will reform whenever whenever anyone offers us enough money, which is basically never. So. Mm. So you've never reformed since? Oh you no, left? we have. We played that's a couple. We released a live album from London that's actually really good. Oh, I don't even know which that is a one. Okay. Miracle! It's live at the Royal Festival Hall, Grantley Buffalo, okay. and it's nineteen songs. They're all from one show. Soft wolf tree. The emerald forest. He was looking to make a. There in the spindly thicket softly did he tread The soft wool tree sure was star Through his silver coat his ribs shone sharply carved The hand that feeds was picking weeds And he sure looked star Up comes her, he's beautiful as a sun We didn't rehearse at all before the show, no and way. before that three months that we hadn't seen each other, the three months that before that that we did rehearse, we practiced three times, and we hadn't been together for 25 years or whatever no that way. was. It was right rid- ridiculous. Okay, yeah. it's ridiculous. And if you listen to that CD, it's ridiculous. This is all from one show. It's all live. It's no editing. The, the it, it's like here's right. here's like here's a, here's the songs we played. Yeah. pretty much. As you know? naked as it gets. And, and it's like we haven't played together basically in 20 years, and here's a show. Okay. Oh, I'll and check that out. That. I don't even know about this one. No, listen to that and like, well, here you go. Okay. There, Grantley Buffalo was live. Killer. Killer. Um, so. Now let me ask you this: I love the Velvet Goldmine soundtrack, mm. and I know you're involved there. You guys had that song, the whole shebang, on there. Darling, you can't live your life singing songs in exile. You were born for Stardom's crown. Enough with self-denial. So don't you close the door on fate when she comes to call and 
part of one of those super groups i don't remember which one are you part of the wild rats or are you in the venus and furs or vote both what are you doing on there i was in the venus and furs i think you were and they've got like four or five songs on that album i it sang some of those i sang some of those songs and i produced all of them you did which ones did you sing i sang bitters end I sang the alternate version of the 2HB. Yeah. Me, the Jack Ferry sings, I think it is. Yeah. And um, I produced all this. <laughs> I wondered. Okay. That's yeah, one of my Mike, favorite soundtracks of all time. Michael came to us with the whole, he and Grant wrote the whole shebang together, I think. Oh, okay. And when we were in the studio doing the whole shebang, I said to Michael, like, you've got like, different people that are supposed to be different people doing different songs in different places. This is going to be a mess. You need somebody to produce this and make it all sound like it's supposed to be one thing. Uh-huh. And like, hire me. Yeah. Like, I'll come to London and produce this whole thing and put these things together and make them sound like they're supposed to be from, you know, it, you need to know like, okay, this is supposed to be in this venue. It's got to sound like this. Blah, blah, blah. Right. There's a bunch of technical shit that needs to go on to this. Let me do this. And he basically did. <laughs> Great. And that's, that's how I got involved. And that's where I met Eno actually was on that I trip. Yep. Okay. I wondered. Which is, a, uh, I don't know if you have time, but it's. A, yeah. It's, tell me, tell me the story. All right. I'll, I'll try and make it quick. Okay. So this is about, and this is another one of those failure things for me. Here, here you go. The, the, it was about 28 days into the recording. I had literally been working every single day on this soundtrack. It was crazy. The amount of work was insane. The deadlines were nuts. Uh, there were many times where I worked 72 hours in a row without sleep. And then the next day I was in again. Like, it was crazy. Uh -huh. So this is about day 28. Michael Stipe organizes a breakfast at this place called the Hempel Hotel in London. Hmm. And 
there's going to be like 15 people at this breakfast and it's, uh, it's Eno, it's Brian Ferry who hadn't been in a room together in like 15 years or something. It's Jarvis Cocker. It's Tom and Johnny from Radiohead. It's Michael Stipe. It's a couple other people, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I show up at like 10 in the morning, whatever the hell it is at this hotel. I've, I've been working for t- basically a month straight and I am out of my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm out of freaking mind, like with work. Mm-hmm. And, so I show up in this hotel. It's all white. First of all, everything is white. Carpeting, floor, ceiling, desk, table. Wow. Everything is literally white. And there's twins working behind the desk. Okay. So right away, it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. Right. Okay? <laughs> I, walk, Sorry. I walk up to the desk and say, where's, you know, where's the breakfast? Downstairs, blah, blah, blah. I, I walk downstairs and I see Eno sitting there at this table. And there's maybe most of the people are already here. But there's a seat open next to Eno. It's like, why? Well, mm-hmm. Beeline be for that chair because Eno <laughs> is number one for me. Got it. And so sit there for an hour talking to Eno, make a couple of jokes at other people's expense about getting us pancakes and whatever. And Eno is a very funny guy. Mm-hmm. He's a very disarming, very charming, very funny guy. He's very much like Bowie. Mm-hmm. Very intelligent guy, very funny guy. And so at the end of this breakfast, he says, I'm going to go through, uh, go, go for a walk through Hyde Park. Does anybody want to go with me? And so, of course, I say, no, I got to get back to the studio. Sorry, Brian. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, no way. The stupidest move I have ever made in my life. What? The single biggest regret that I have, uh, that I, that I have in my lifetime. Yeah. Is that, that is that I didn't say, yes, Brian Eno, I will go for a walk with you in the park. No way. Why and it was I a, do that? It was on a platter. How could you miss that? Dude. And this is how this is how work crazy I am. Mm. I've been plugged into this thing for 28 days or whatever it is, and I'm like, nope, got to get back in the studio. I got a lot of work to do. You know what I mean? Like, no sorry, way. Brian. I'm sorry, Brian. Hate to blow you off, but well, I got to go back to work. You know? I don't think anyone would have faulted you <laughs> if you were a couple hours late because you went on a walk with Eno. No, of course not. You know, and that's the stupid part. This is how this is how stuck into work I was at that point in my life. Oh man, nothing was going to derail me from the mission at hand. Not even Brian Eno. Wanting to go for a walk on a beautiful day in London with Brian Eno. Crazy. Just me and Eno strolling through the park talking about whatever. Oh, my gosh. He knows what that would have been. And yeah. you know what I mean? Because yeah. I, I got along pretty well with him off the bat because he's one of those. Uh, he's, he, he's just got such a great sense of humor, that mm-hmm. guy. And I know that would have been incredible to yeah. sit there and talk to him about like, oh, this stuff and that stuff and sure. art and like. Well, we like a lot of the same art stuff and like blah, blah, blah. Like that might've been a good idea, Paul, you freaking idiot. Oh man. You should have gone on that walk. I can't believe that. I can't believe you blew that. I gotta be honest. Oh wow. The choir. Yeah. Okay. Realized about halfway back to the studio in the cab. What am I doing right now? Oh my gosh. The moment's gone. You totally blew it and it's over and you, regret this the rest of your life yes i do <laughs> now did you ever interface at all with bowie during the recording of that soundtrack because he famously didn't no. want anything to do with it and no, he famously did not and i did not have anything to do with bowie whatsoever during that okay. during that time the, the only time i met bowie was that time he came to our dressing room okay so i spent any time talking to him I didn't know if you had to like interface with him, like, Hey, it's actually going to be okay. And I'm, you know, I'm producing if, if there were emails sent back and forth or whatever, no, maybe not, not a, not a, not Nothing. a single, okay. not a 
contact with him, which is a shame because any excuse to like be in contact with Bowie would have been fine with me. Well, you probably would have screwed that up too, to be honest. Oh, no, no, no please. <laughs> I'm you're preaching to the choir. I, if, I have, <laughs> if I have a chance to screw it up, uh, believe me, I'm I, just I will. your chops. No, like with those with those guys, like apparently. But see, these are the only people that could actually get me. The thing with Eno is funny because Eno is one of those guys that could probably fluster me just because mm-hmm. I have such a reverence for his catalog and such a reverence for his work. Him and Bowie were the two that like I, I've met a lot of famous people and I don't give a shit. Like uh, you're just a guy or a girl working on something and I, I get it, you know, uh-huh. but those two are so ingrained in my sort of 17-year-old mm-hmm. experience. Sure, they're, when they're it matters my- the most. They're mythological figures because sure. they were important to me at that time in my life, you know? And, yeah. and you can't you can't ever get over that mythology uh, that happens at that time in your life, I don't think. That's a very special Sure is period in your life musically it's, i think it's key it sets the stage for everything after that it really does i mean i literally learned to play bass to taking tiger mountain by strategy really i learned to play bass to that record oh, and that wow. was the record that made me think like oh fuck this is easy because <laughs> the bass parts are really simple on that record Interesting. you know okay oh wow. i can do this yeah <laughs> that's great well, wow that's pr- okay so what have you been doing ever since i mean i look over your you know uh your <laughs> what's that let what me you... just pluck my record again well no i mean that yeah but that's not 20 years in the making i don't think i mean what's society six by the way when i first googled you about a year ago that's what popped up is the society six thing and i don't know what that is I'll tell you exactly what that is here's what i've been doing the last 15 years okay. i i released an album of my uh, epistle star record in like 2004 okay since then i have done nothing but produce other people okay so that's uh, how you make your living and you're yeah. able to do that okay well a living <laughs> yeah you're pushing it there. It's very right. bad right now. Yeah. Uh, it's very difficult to make any money because there is no money. Exactly. Um, but I did that for about 12 years. Um, I produced this band called the Reptones. There's this great rock band from Trinidad called Joint Pop that anybody that likes rock music should listen to because freaking Christ, if this was a different time, they would all be billionaires because oh, those songs really? are amazing. They're okay. amazing. That those records are amazing, and they are rock and roll records. Okay, not necessarily my thing, my specialty, right. but I love these guys, and they're and the singer is amazing. The singer is 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 Joe Strummer meets the Beatles. Oh, the Clash. Oh. Okay, like it, it, it's amazing. So cool. I, we'll play I, a little I, bit I, of it right here for people I to did hear. A, did a couple of. Yeah, play Simply Beautiful from Quicksand is what okay. you need to say, all right? Okay. So, I did a couple of joint pop records. One day I learned to dance, just to dance with you. We'll be the life of the party, yeah. It's just me and you. And one day I learned to sing, I'll sing a song for you. It's just me and you
because I did a couple of Reptones records, which is this band from Denmark. And there are songs on some of those records that's some of the best work I've ever done. Mm. Uh, and then I did a bunch of other stuff. I did some local people. I did this. I did that, whatever. And then about three or four years ago, I, I really screwed my knee up. Mm. And like literally couldn't walk for about a year. Oh, boy. And so I'm sitting around going, what the hell am I going to do? And so I started painting. I've always, I've, I love painting. Okay. And I love art. I always have. And so I, and I've always wanted to have a body of work. Sure. A body of artwork. It's like one of my things. Like I want to leave behind a body of work. So I took about three years and I didn't do anything but paint for about three years. And I turned out about a thousand things. And most of them are on Society6. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> okay. That, now I know. I wondered. Now, let yeah. me ask you a really pointed question. And if this is too touchy, you tell me. We'll cut it out. Are you married? Does your wife work? No. Can she help pay the bills during this time? I have never been married and I have never, I, I don't have any kids, never been married. Okay. So when you take three years off to paint, uh, how does how does the electricity get paid for? I have no bills. Oh, do you still live in a teepee in someone's I backyard? Pretty close to a teepee. Okay. Uh, and and my production gigs, I still took production gig in that three year stint. Uh huh. And it's like, I mean, I I literally have no bills. I literally have no uh, overhead. Okay. I Why? Don't have How? A, I don't have do you a not car. pay rent I, I somewhere? What do you car. do? I mean, I have I have to pay rent, right. but I mean, I don't have like debts and credit cards, and I I okay. literally have nothing of that because I can't. Okay. I have to be ready to be able to pick up the phone and say, okay, I'll come to Trinidad in two weeks and do a record or I'll go here or I'll go yeah. there. And that's part of the the hustle. There's a lot of sacrifices to do something like this. You cannot lead a particularly stable life. That's why I ask. Yeah. And, uh, and I have helped, I, 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 I I live with someone that I'm not sure wants to be revealed that I live with. And okay. so I'm not going to see uh, the name, but, has been a help to me. Like when I don't have money, the rent gets covered. When I do have money, I try and give it to them. Hmm. I, I do the best I can to stay on an even keel, okay. like so that I'm not costing anybody else money. Right. Okay. But my, my living is subsidized by someone. Yes. Okay. And someone terrific. Good. Is this like a <laughs> that, girlfriend or something? I, I don't want to say anything okay. about it because okay. it's like it, it's it's one of those situations where I don't want to uh, I don't want to overstep my bounds into okay. somebody else's territory or whatever. Okay. But it's a very awesome human being that I've known for a long time and, and is awesome. And, Good. And, Good and for you. And and carries me in times where it's like I can't come up with this right now, but if you give me three months, I'll probably get this and whatever. Yeah. And that's the, the way my life has always been. Hmm. And uh, that is a very stupid way to live well, it, it's a difficult way to live but it's kind of what you have to do because you don't know when your money is right. coming right uh, so you kind of have to be floaty yeah <laughs> to, to survive in it and it's uh, you know, it's the, the best situation but eh. works for you that's um that's one of the focuses of this podcast again going back to why it's called the hustle is because i'm always interested in how musicians maintain careers over the long haul how do they pay their bills and mostly i talked to not mostly but i talked to a lot of people who had like one hit in 1986 and how do you live off that for the rest of your life can you and a lot of people have to go get regular jobs or they play a lot of rewind festivals you know they 
uh, drive a cab, whatever it might be, you know? And so I find that really interesting because we love you, you know? People listening to this love Grantley Buffalo. We want the best for you. And so we want to make sure that you're happy and we're curious what that life entails. And uh, so that's why I ask these things. No, and it's a good point. And and I think that the, the idea... Uh, it, not not so much these days, but the idea that anybody that was ever in the music business has a bunch of money or whatever is ridiculous. I mean, I never had a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Even when Grantley Buffalo, I mean, the, the crew made more than we did. Oh, like wow. literally mm-hmm. a lot more than we did. Actually, mm-hmm. it's like, fuck, I should be a sound man. Like <laughs> I'm in the wrong business here, you know? Right. Because you're the, you're you're always the last one to get paid as a band member, like the attorneys and the law, the, the lawyers and the accountants and the managers and the booking agent and the crew. Everybody else, everybody's going to get paid, mm-hmm. and except for the musicians. Yeah. And this is one of the things that really pisses me off about the music business. It's like, why do these other people have a steady job and I'm the one that should take it in the shorts? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it, you know. If you want to be in the music business, well, guess what? You're going to be a sound man. You're in the music business too. So why aren't you taking the same risk I am? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it always pissed me off. And, yeah. I, and, I, and to this day, I think it's blatantly unfair. Totally. And I, and I think that the people in bands generally are the, the worst treated in the entire system mm-hmm. of, of, of the whole thing. And because there's some expectation that like, well, because you're in the band, it doesn't matter. Like you're getting some other kind of reward from it or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think uh, they play on their, on desperation on people's no, desperation to, to make it, to be creative, to, you know, feel the feelings of playing in front of thousands of people. They know you'll do anything for that. And so they make you sacrifice everything, you know? No, it's true. That, and that's, that's the business model. And if you won't do it, the next sucker will. Exactly. And that's, that's what I tried to avoid right from the start and did did a pretty good job of it for the most part. Like, you know, I would say the one piece of advice I have for people is don't, here's the problem is people that are drawn to music, people that are drawn from the arts generally are not people that like business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Oftentimes they're people that hate business like me. And they're also people that generally maybe don't want to involve themselves in conflict. Mm-hmm. They just want to like, okay, whatever, just get me away from this, blah, blah, blah. Sure. And it's the one thing that I've learned over the years and that I'm coming to now is that now I'm more willing to engage in conflict with people that are trying to screw me over. Huh. And I'm more willing to engage and not just walk away from something because it's going to be a conflict or it's going to be a problem or it's going to upset me or it's going to be a pain in the ass or whatever it is. It's like, you know what? Screw you. I'm not going to let you get away with this. And I'm going to speak up and say something and maybe I'll piss you off. I don't care anymore. Like I don't care if I piss people off anymore. And that's not somewhere I ever wanted to be as a human being. And, uh, but it's someplace, it's someplace that you have to get to on some level Otherwise, you'll just get run over. Yeah, yeah. And I never wanted to get there because I hate it. I, I don't like that aspect of business or being a human being or anything else. Like, uh, I like very specific things, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's not one of them. So, yeah, but that's the thing. It's like you you've got to take care of yourself to at least to the point where you're not getting completely screwed by people. Yeah, you have to stand up for yourself, basically. You know, that makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, uh, look, Paul, I just want you to know that your band meant a lot to me and, um, I really love you guys. And I am grateful that you've been able to cobble together this career and this life for yourself. 
as challenging as it may be sometimes, at least you're out there living your truth, as they say. And um, your band was, you know how college is for people. The music that hits you in college really shapes you in a lot of ways. And Grantley Buffalo was one of those bands, a big band oh, for awesome. me. So oh, that's awesome. Th- yes. Thank you for the artistry you've put out in this world. It means a oh, lot to me. Uh, well, I appreciate that because that's the point of all of this. It's sure. like a lot of it is, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's because I was, I have some musical talent or this, that, or the other thing. But the connection with people is the whole point of this. Right. And so it's good to know that it does actually mean something to somebody else and you're not just pissing in the wind or whatever. Like right. it's very important. And that, that connection is the entire reason, uh, that you ever speak out about any of this stuff to begin with. It's like, it's not in a vacuum. Like I, I get a lot from doing the work and stuff, but if you're not connecting with anybody, uh, so what, you know? Right. right. Well, it connected. Uh, and, and I want you to know that. So thank you no, for talking no. to me. It does mean a lot to me. I appreciate that. Good. You've been on my high on my wish list for a long time. There you have it. Paul Kimball. I love Paul Kimball. I love that band and I love people like Paul. So much fun. I, I got to admit, guys, I always try to make these interviews kind of universal, you know, that you don't have to necessarily be a fan of the band or the person we're talking about to really get it or appreciate it. So hopefully this wasn't too nerdy in the Grantley Buffalo world. You could appreciate what a what a vibrant, honest, funny guy Paul was and, and some of the difficulties, quite honestly, around maintaining a career in music. I mean, that's what we talk about around here. And he was very open and honest about what some of those challenges are, right? So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Now, uh, we have been sort of tossing you guys around into all different genres and decades lately. And next week is no exception. We are going, we are going to be talking to a, one of the great disco divas next week. I'm not going to tell you who. I will tell you it's not Gloria Gaynor. But uh, we are going to be talking about disco and hearing her stories. I love disco. I wish I could feature it more often on here. So I'm really glad that this lady talked to me. Hopefully you guys will enjoy that and come back next week for that. You guys know the drill by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can uh, send us a message on there if you want. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. By the way, I forgot to mention... Yes, I wasn't the world's biggest fan of Grantley Buffalo's third album, Copperopolis. There are some parts of it I like, and it has grown on me. But this is probably my second favorite album song on that album. It's called Homespun. This is the first track. So I wanted to close it out with something that he would appreciate and that might, you know, uh, redeem that album in, in people's eyes and ears. Okay? And a huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makiewicz, for putting everything together and being the producer of this podcast. Thank you, buddy. We will see you guys next Tuesday.
It's not a 